You had an option, sir. You could have said, I am not going to do it. This is wrong for Canada. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. David, summer is here. You know that it's officially here because we had July 1st, July 4th. Everyone is celebrating independence from the United Kingdom. So that must mean the start of summer, right? I mean, if you look at it in a more global perspective, there's practically always somebody celebrating independence from the United Kingdom. So it's only a somewhat reliable marker. But here in North America, I think we can agree summer is fully upon us this year. Yeah, if we celebrate the earliest independences from Great Britain, then that's this time of year, the beginning of July. Summer is here in the Northern Hemisphere. Of course, wherever you are around the world, as you say, David, somebody's probably celebrating independence from the British. So there's always something to celebrate. And we should do just that with a podcast. You ready to tell us a story, David? Sure, I can tell you a story, Neil. All right, for the newcomers, the title of the podcast is Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And that's because I ask you exactly that, David, and you take us back in history. So, Oh Brother, When Art Thou? Neil, it's sometime in early July, 209 BC, somewhere in what is now the Anhui province of China. And, crucially, it's raining. Chen Sheng and Wu Guang two low-ranking army officers charged with marching 900 conscripts to their assigned post in the town of Yuyang are increasingly worried that the muddy roads they have to contend with might just make them late. And nobody likes to be late for dinner, David. Now, why is this such a concern for these two soldiers that they might be late? Because of the weather. So, to talk about that, we really have to talk about the government that they were living under. Since this is 209 years before the Common Era, this is a very long time ago, and it's really in one of the earliest periods of what we would understand as a nation recognizable as China existing at all. And so the dynasty that they are living and working under is called the Qin Dynasty. And it's one of the first to cover not the entirety of the modern Chinese state, but at least a reasonable proportion of the geographic extent of the modern Chinese state. And it reached this pinnacle of power. And compared to earlier dynasties, it really does control much, much more territory. It reached this with ruthless, iron determination, and incredibly strict laws, rules, and regulations by ensuring that the rules are strict and thereby forcing their own people to obey them, they're able to be more organized and stronger than the surrounding territories and then pick them off one by one, creating this for the era super state. And that means that their regulations are harsh for everyone, but especially in the military. And practically any breach of military discipline can end with the soldier who breaches discipline being executed, put to death. 
And it really can be something as simple as arriving late with a perfectly good excuse if the emperor doesn't accept it. That does seem very harsh, David. I mean, it's raining. Of course, they're going to be walking a little bit slower in the mud and dealing with the elements. So do these guys have a plan, David? Can they make these conscripts walk faster? Well, the basic answer is no. They are contending with basic elemental forces. There is no roads in China in this period that are built well enough to let an army and 900 men is not a large army, but it's large enough to need things like supply wagons, as well as the men walk in themselves, and they need to cross muddy roads. And there's simply no way, realistically, to speed up this march. So of course, what these two army officers want to do is improve their political position, try and come up with something that they can send back to the court in order to get a pardon for arriving late. But the problem is that Chen Cheng, in particular, is not necessarily popular at court. So he's worried that even though his excuses are reasonable and should be understood, it doesn't seem likely that he's actually going to get off this time. So he may be in a bit of a corner just because he's not well-liked, which just goes to show, David, why you should try to be well-liked at work. If not, you might end up with your head chopped off, but hopefully not for our hero so far, Cheng Shang. Why isn't he liked, David? Well, it's hard to say. We're, of course, talking about something that happened really before the rise of truly reliable written records anywhere on Earth, even in China, which has written records going back much farther than, say, Europe. But even there, it's not a super reliably covered period. We do have the excellent chronicles of Sima Qian, the first well-respected Chinese historian who covers this period. But unfortunately, he's not particularly detailed on why Chen Sheng was unpopular at court, other than the fact that he was of relatively common birth, unlike the aristocrats who surrounded the emperor, and he'd risen to a mid-level army position mostly on hard work and determination, but also by edging out some of his more aristocratic competitors, sometimes ruthlessly. And the combination of those factors had sort of built a faction at court that viewed him as a jumped-up upstart, somebody who didn't deserve his position because of his common birth. So how does the march go, David? Are they able to get these 900 soldiers there in time? Well, as it becomes increasingly clear that they're not going to make it, Chen Sheng suddenly loses his previous urgency of trying to drive them ever faster and starts instead treating his men much more reasonably, recognizing that trying to force them increasingly aggressively doesn't make sense and is counterproductive and starts being more of a, you know, helpful and positive boss to these soldiers than he has been previously. And at the same time, he starts reaching out more to Wu Guang, the other officer on this march. And there's a reason why there's two officers marching this group of conscripts to their garrison rather than just one, because of course the government tries to encourage there to be two officers, two senior officers 
anywhere there's a substantial group of soldiers present so that if one of them starts contemplating treason, the other one will be there as a check and a balance. But Chen Sheng makes a really determined effort to reach out to Wu Guang and point out that both of them are in the same boat. They're both commanding soldiers who at this point are clearly going to be late, and they should be thinking about what their alternatives are in terms of perhaps career options. Yeah, if they're going to be late, David, doesn't seem like they have a ton of options. Uh, You mentioned that they can try to maybe come up with some better excuses or make some friends at court so that they have a better chance of not being convicted. Of course, that might not work for Chen Sheng as he's already not well liked. You know, maybe there's someone else they can pin the blame on. Or you mentioned treason. They do have 900 men on their side. What options are these two starting to contemplate? Well, this is when something very unusual happens. Now, this again, I've got to emphasize 200 years before the common era. This was a long time ago, and it's really before standardized military logistic systems to provide all of the food and equipment and everything that a soldier needs uh, really existed. Again, even in China, which had those things earlier than many other countries even there, they just don't exist this early. So even though the march is urgent, even though they're being pushed as fast as they can, the troops still have to stop regularly to gather food and to forage to gather food because otherwise they would get no food. So you have to eat. And so they stop by a river to fish because that's one good way of foraging to get some food. And they're fishing And one of the soldiers says, hey, this is weird, because he's just pulled out a foot fish out of the river, already cooked, apparently, and it's got a paper in its mouth, and when they open it up and read it, it says, Chen Sheng is the rightful emperor of the Qin. Wow, David, I have heard of pulling swords from lakes to become emperor, but pulling fish that have messages in their mouth to become emperor is something else entirely. David, this is quite the tale. What is the reaction among the men when they read this message in this cooked fish that they pulled from the river? Well, the fundamental thing going on here is that although the ordinary troops don't have the same risk that their two senior officers do, they're very unlikely that the entire unit would be executed for being late. They all know that they could very well be punished for arriving late. And they all know that they're going to be late. So just as the two senior officers have a reason to conspire together and maybe to plant this fish into a net, probably, if we're being honest here. You don't think it's actually a message from the gods, David? I'm cynical. I'm a cynical, skeptical kind of person. Well, we can always believe, but it does seem slightly more likely that perhaps someone planted the fish there. Anyway, but the troops also have a reason to go along with it. If you believe that you and possibly even your family are going to be punished for arriving late and having an unpopular commander, which is not something you chose, then the idea of embracing this alternative concept of, you know, we're just going to overthrow the emperor and create a new, better system is suddenly attractive 
in a way that would seem crazy to people not facing this kind of pressure, this kind of risk that feels so out of their control. So many of the soldiers quickly decide to go along with the uprising. A few, of course, try and reject it, but they're outnumbered. And soon Chen Sheng has a military unit under his command and loyal that he's going to try and use to raise a rebellion and overthrow the dynasty. Wow, David, this turned on a dime here. They are going up against really the first true nation here. What chance do they have, David? You already mentioned that China at this point is coming together into what we could recognize as a country. And how can this small group of soldiers really hope to stand up against this dynasty? So on the one hand, it's crazy. This is a tiny, tiny detachment by the standards of the Qin army. There are many, many larger armies that could be sent to crush them. But on the other hand, they know that they're responding to widespread, widely felt anger at this tyrannical regime because this level of bureaucratization that the Qin have introduced is really something new in Chinese history. And the level of strict, harsh punishments that they impose for incredibly minor crimes is obviously unpopular, not merely with soldiers, but with the entire population. So this rebellion is the first or one of the first real uprisings in the military against the dynasty, but they're tapping into sentiments that were already pre-existing. And fairly soon, they're riding from town to town, raising new levies of anti-Chin rebels to join their armies and create a new rebel army that they're going to use to try and overthrow the dynasty. And this obviously worries the Qin emperor at the time. I should mention he's only the second emperor in the Qin dynasty. And actually his name, Qin Urshi, translated out of Chinese, just means the second emperor of the Qin. It's a very literal thing. So he knows that he's not in the most stable of situations. This is not a long dynasty that has a long history to support it. Well, David, this is an interesting development. It kind of goes to show that maybe sometimes it's better to be loved than feared because their harsh punishments have actually turned this unit against them towards the leader, Chen Sheng, who was treating them nicely towards the end of this march. And now people are starting to rise up against them. But really, David, what chance can the rebels have here? Ultimately, the rebels don't have a great chance, or I should say more specifically, these rebels don't have a great chance. The dynasty responds to this early uprising very harshly. They send extremely large armies gathered from other portions of China to try and nip this in the bud and crush it quickly. And they succeed in that, in the early clashes between Qin troops and the rebels before the Qin emperor knew what was going on. There were some rebel successes because they were able to 
use their advantage of surprise and attack troops who didn't know that there was an uprising going on and weren't prepared to stop them. But once the large armies are formed and launched against them, they lose the initial battles and they're forced to retreat and try and avoid pursuit and go sort of act like guerrillas. And then slowly but surely, they're stamped out. And early leaders like Wu Guang and Chen Sheng are both either captured and executed by the Qin in the case of Wu Guang, or killed by some of his own supporters as an effort to get a pardon from the Qin emperor in the case of Chen Sheng. But that doesn't end the rebellion itself. Once it's started, it really starts to snowball with more and more groups jumping in, especially as large armies are stripped from large areas of the country to go and march against Chen Sheng. Areas of the country that they just left suddenly find themselves full of new rebels who see an opportunity to seize control while the Qin are busy elsewhere. So not the ending that Cheng Sheng wanted, David. As it turns out, the fish that said he was the true emperor was wrong, and he ends up with an untimely death, as does his co-conspirator. But the fight lives on, David, despite the death of these two soldiers who originally started this thing just to try and get out of the punishment, which was to be death anyway, possibly. So now a rebellion is in full swing here in the Qin dynasty. Do new leaders emerge, David, and do they have better success than the original two? So lots of new leaders emerge. That's actually going to be part of the problem. But in the short term, it's a strength for the rebellion. Lots of people had pre-existing problems with the Qin. They see weakness as the Qin armies leave to confront this small band of rebels. The need to gather so many troops to face such a small band and the temporary absence of Qin troops across large parts of China both read as weakness to potential rebels. And soon there's uprisings with different ideologies, different leaders, different goals, but all of them rising up against the dynasty at roughly the same time. And this, in turn, very quickly spirals into a collapse of the Qin power, especially as the rebels seem stronger, more and more army units start to desert, which both strengthens the rebels and weakens the Qin armies at the same time. And soon it's devolved from a rebellion against the Qin into almost a race to the capital as many of the troops involved, many of the leaders of the rebels, want to be the one to capture the capital, execute the emperor, and try and take some of the legitimacy as leaders of the new nation from holding it. And it's a relatively obscure leader by the name of Liu Bang, who will actually be the first to reach the capital. But he doesn't, at this point in time, have enough troops to actually enforce control over the entirety of China. And in the short term, after the fall of the Qin dynasty, there will actually be no fewer than 18 kingdoms created by different rebel leaders and groups in different provinces of China, all of whom 
are trying to claim control of the whole country, but effectively 18 kingdoms for a short period of time, which helps you to understand how splintered the rebel movement had been before it succeeded. Yeah, that's pretty splintered, David. 18 different rebel leaders setting up their own kingdoms. Is this going to just go back to the way it was before the dynasty was able to really put China into one country to pull it together into one political entity? Are we going to end up with just a splintering where now we go back to the old way that everyone sort of had their own smaller kingdoms and the country is sort of in a constant state of disarray as all these separate leaders rule their own smaller areas? No, quite the opposite. Basically, all of the new kingdoms want to view themselves as holding the entirety of China. Very few of them are dominated by locals, for one thing. Many of the rebels moved around during the rebellion to avoid Qin armies, which means that frequently the rebel leaders holding a random area as their quote-unquote kingdom are actually from a completely different part of China and obviously want to hold the whole thing, not just wherever they ended up. Liu Bang, who I mentioned as being the man to actually execute the last Qin emperor, is forced for a while to retreat to the far west because he simply doesn't have the troops to hold on. And he will actually start building his new power base in the far west of China with the goal of conquering the remainder. Another group, the Chu, will build their power base in the east slowly assimilating a number of these small kingdoms. By the end of the generation of the rebels, it's really settled down into what's known as the Chu Han contention, really a civil war of sorts in China between the Chu in the east and the Han in the west, both of whom want to control the entire country, the entire former territory controlled by the Qin dynasty, and rule it according to their own principles. And it's ultimately the Han who will succeed, crush the Chu, retake the entirety of China, and create the Han dynasty, which in turn creates a lot of the things that we associate with modern China. Things like incredibly important state examinations to select public sector officials, state support of Confucianism as the state philosophy or ideology. These items that we really associate with China come from the Han Dynasty, and both of them in many ways are rejections of the Qin Dynasty and its focus on aristocrats and strict legal punishments as their ruling philosophy and ideology, which were viewed to have failed by later Chinese scholars exactly because they are what caused or what are seen to have caused the Chen Sheng Rebellion. Well, David, they learned from the lessons there that if you punish someone for being late because of the rain, they're not going to take that well, and they might even rebel against you and bring about the end of your dynasty. What a huge result for Chen Sheng and his small group of 900 men. A generation later, it leads to 
a new dynasty in China and really one that would have a huge influence on that country and thus the world going forward. It is, and it has later effects in China, especially in the early communist period when the communists are taking over China. Chen Sheng, a commoner who rejected aristocratic rule and who led a rebellion, is viewed by communist thinkers in China as sort of a almost proto-communist, as a demonstration that the peasantry were always ready to rebel and build a better society, which is something that communist thinkers viewed as very important to argue. So they end up having, yes, being recontextualized, different Chinese eras, different Chinese thinkers down the years will come back to Chen Sheng as an inspiration and as an example of whatever they believe, whatever that may be. Frequently because of how well he was written by Sima Qian, the famous Chinese historian who is most of my source for this podcast, who, by the way, has a great scene, which we have to acknowledge is probably not historically accurate. He doesn't have a good source. This is just a reconstruction he did, where Chen Sheng and Wu Guang, before they rebel, are having a discussion. And Chen Sheng asks his co-conspirator, what is the punishment for treason? And his co-conspirator says, the punishment for treason is death. We cannot risk it. And then he asks, what is the punishment for arriving late? And the other man says, the punishment for arriving late is death. Oh, wait. And that's the moment they realize that the revolution is their only option. It's certainly a great anecdote, David, and a great story. Thanks for telling us. I always enjoy it, Neil. If you enjoyed it, make sure you leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. It only takes a second and it helps other people to find our podcast. We really appreciate it. David, we always like to end with something fun. And we were talking off the top about July 1st and July 4th being independence from Britain days in Canada and the United States. And of course, there are another 60 some odd countries that also celebrate independence from the United Kingdom. So I thought we'd do a quiz, a pretty straightforward guessing game here, David, before or after. And I'm going to set as our benchmark Kenya, which achieved independence in 1963. That will be our benchmark. So your job is to guess whether these other countries achieved independence before or after Kenya in 1963. Ready to play? All right, let's try it, Neil. All right, let's start with a close neighbor of Kenya. How about Uganda? Uganda. Did they get their independence before or after 1963? Now, I've got to admit, I'm not really an expert on African history, so this is a tricky one. But Uganda, and of course the terrible story of Idi Amin who took over there, has always struck me as being less developed than Kenya in the British colonial period. So I'll guess that it was less of a priority and therefore probably later for decolonization. So I'll guess after Kenya. No, this one was actually pretty close to Kenya, David. Uganda got their independence from the British on the 9th of October, 1962. So that's a before. Our next country, let's go to the Middle East. And how about the United Arab Emirates before or after 1963? The United Arab Emirates in a crucial strategic position along the 
exit of the Suez Canal, but were they before or after 63? Certainly a lot of the rest of the Middle East had already been decolonized by that point. I'm not sure about the United Arab Emirates, but I'll guess before. It was after, David. They celebrate independence on National Day, which is the 2nd of December, 1971. How about a Caribbean country? Let's go to Barbados, David. Barbados. Again, I'm really not certain where they fall in relation to Kenya. I'll guess before. This is an after again. They were in 1966, which was a year that saw four countries gain independence. Along with Barbados, there was Botswana, Guyana, and Lesotho. Uh, They all gained independence that year, and four is the most that has ever happened in one year. It also happened in 1961 when Cameroon, Kuwait, Sierra Leone, and Tanzania also gained independence. David, how about a country that's been in the news a lot lately, Afghanistan, before or after 1963? Afghanistan was certainly before 1963, for the most part, although the British did invade it, I believe, twice. They didn't hold uh, Afghanistan as a colony for very long either time. You're right, David. It was well before they got their independence from Britain in 1919, the fourth country to gain independence after the US, Canada, and Australia. Australia was 1901, if you're wondering. And so let's move towards Australia and Oceania with the country of Brunei next to Indonesia before or after 1963. Brunei close to Malaysia and Indonesia. Now, Malaysia got its independence relatively early. They were in the 1950s. I'm not sure whether Brunei was at the same time or not, but I'm going to guess that it would have been roughly close, so I will guess before 1963. It was another after David in 1984. It's the most recent country to gain its independence from the United Kingdom, so there's a small sampling of the 60-some-odd countries that get to celebrate an Independence Day from the United Kingdom. Thanks for playing along, and thanks for listening. 